Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I am Matthew. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Today, we are going to be answering a very important question. What does a lawnmower man walk like? Oh, that is interesting. It's a very important question. Um, so we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier music podcast network. just want to give you a little update about some changes we've made some to some earlier episodes. Mm. Uh, I know we have some older listeners that have been with us for a while. Uh, when we first started this podcast, we didn't include music clips on our episodes because we felt they violated copyright usage. <laughs> well, we consulted with some attorneys, and it turns out that our podcast is a critique which falls under the fair use copyright law and allows us to use some music clips so as long so long as we have something to say about the songs and we uh, don't use them as music beds or anything like that. So we have meticulously gone back into our older catalog and added some clips. If maybe you didn't have time to listen to some of the bands we were talking about when you first listened, maybe go back and listen to it again and uh, get some flavor for the music uh, that we were referring to. So uh, these are available in their new and improved form at audiojudo.com. And we will be noting uh, in the show notes on there. First of all, I'm updating the show notes as well. Thank you, Matthew, for uh, oh, yeah. uh, coming up with all those notes. I'm going to put those on there as well. When we update the audio, I will put a note in the show notes that says updated audio and the date that it was updated. I like this. So that uh, that way, if you're going back to listen to an old episode or you want to figure out which ones have been updated, you can look and I'll probably put it right at the top of the show notes uh, just so that you can glance at it real quick and say, oh, this one's been updated. And that way... It's not all going to happen at once, because obviously it takes us time to process these, and, and Matthew's got to go through and pick where he wants to put the music, and, and then Randy's got to actually go through and put the music in it. So uh, it'll take us a little bit of time, but it'll slowly happen over a period of a few, a few months. We are your full-service podcast here, Ooh. trying to make things better for you. Oh. Uh, this week, it's going to be slightly different. Mm. Uh, originally, we were ready to do an episode on Genesis's landmark 1974 album, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. I had done a bunch of research. Kyle may have. I don't yeah, know, what, bit, I don't know when you started. start. Uh, I even had a great piece of writing from show consultant Chris about the making of the record. Uh, but then something kind of fell into our lap on my... Go ahead. No, I was say it was a stripper. Yeah. 
Well, that happens, I yeah, guess. Okay, but- On my nightly perusing of Twitter and assorted social media, I came across a post by Steve Hackett, the former lead guitarist of Genesis, as he was getting ready to release a double live album of him performing his solo record, Spectral Mornings, and the Genesis record selling England by the Pound, both in their entirety. Uh, I thought that'd be cool to talk about. So I took a chance. I emailed him. I emailed his publicist on Monday night. On Tuesday, we were scheduling the interview. And last week, we were able to talk to Steve from his home in Wales. So this episode is going to take a little bit of a different form. Uh, We're going to talk about selling England by the pound like we usually do, track by track breakdown, album art, and all that stuff. But we're going to weave in some of the conversation we had with Steve about the songs, the recording, and other sorted information. And we hope that you guys enjoy it as much as we did prepping for it. So, Selling England by the Pound was the fifth album released by Genesis. Uh, They had been coming off the relative success of their last album, Foxtrot, and the tour that followed. And before we go further, we should probably take a second and talk about Genesis for a bit. Oh, yeah. Especially this particular version of it. So that said, that leads me to my important question for you, Matthew. Go ahead. That's a perfect setup. So do you believe the, the three Genesis's theory? What's that? What, what do you mean? So the idea that they were one band, uh, sort of an English folk band, and then they became a prog rock band, and then they became an 80s pop band. Because mm. some people, I mean, there are people who are very, very militant about this, that they're like, no, I will only listen to that prog rock era Genesis. Mm. And there are some people who are like, they were way better before Steve Hackett showed up and be- they became the prog rock stuff. I'm going- and there are other people who have no idea that any uh, of the prog rock that's true. and folk stuff exists. They just know, you know, late 80s pop music Genesis. Right. So I'm going to say I would subscribe to the two version of Okay. Two Genesis version. Genesis. 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 No, not that one. Oh, yeah. Don't. Genesis. That the original incarnation, the folk Genesis, was nothing more than the beginning of the progressive version. They wanted to be that progressive version. And I don't know that they had the complete chops at that point to do it, but they were still trying to lean that way. Like the first album. Uh, the first album from Genesis to Revelation is essentially a throwaway record that it, it's not even recognizable as Genesis. Okay. However, the second record, Trespass, is leaning towards Prague already. So it's already progressive. There's a song on there called The Knife that they had in their live shows for years and years and years, which is very much a progressive song. So I would say they they were all they wanted to be that and they were leaning. I don't ever believe there was a folk version of Genesis. Okay. I would say it was just the early beginnings of the pro- progressive version of Genesis and then the break, and then it became something completely different. Yeah, that segues nicely, because most people know Genesis as the band of Phil Collins. Yes. If you ask the casual music fan, or even the slightly more serious one, who might not listen to progressive music, this would still be the case, in my opinion. They're the band of Invisible Touch. They're the band of the Michelob song. Tonight, 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 which was featured prominently in a commercial for the beer in 1987. Yes. And the Invisible Touch Tour was even sponsored by the beer, uh, making uh, one of the first rock and roll tours with a sponsor. Hmm. They're the band that had a video with puppets, Land of Confusion. Yes. Which, uh, uh, which won a uh, Grammy Award for Best Concept Music Video. Correct. And a video that mocked Bugle Boy jeans mm-hmm. and We Can't Dance. So if you if you grew up in the 80s or even in the 90s, Phil Collins was ubiquitous. He was on TV. 
on the radio, in the movies. The man could not be stopped. He was on episodes of Miami Vice. He did the soundtrack for Tarzan. He was showing up at the Prince's Trust Ward Balls. He was he was in Live Aid, both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was the guy that took the Concord. Correct. He was everywhere. Well, he was also the drummer in a little band called Genesis. Genesis was actually formed in 1967 at the Charterhouse School in Surrey, England. Of the five men that would form Genesis, only three of those would make it to this fifth album. Tony Banks, who played keyboards, Mike Rutherford, who played bass and some guitar, and Peter Gabriel. Yes, that that Peter Peter Gabriel Gabriel on vocals, flute, and occasional percussion. They recorded two albums together, the unfortunately named From Genesis to Revelation and Trespass with other members of the group. Those two guys left in 1971 after the tour for Trespass, and they were replaced by Phil Collins on drums and Steve Hackett on guitar. That incarnation of the band would record two albums, Nursery Crime and Foxtrot, before settling in to record this record. Now, this is not the band of Invisible Touch. That is correct. While it would be a wash in keyboards, electronic drums, and softer songs that were more suited towards Phil Collins' solo material, this older version of the band was more concerned with guitars, with organ and piano, and long, sweeping musical statements. In fact, one of the songs on Foxtrot, called Supper's Ready, would last for almost 23 minutes. This band, which would end up being firmly entrenched in popular music and straight-ahead rock, was, in 1973, firmly entrenched in progressive rock and were on the outside looking in. Go ahead, you have something. Oh, I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, they definitely were, at this point, a prog rock band. There are very occasionally little tiny hints of, of what they would become as far as like a pop music band. Glimmers. Glimmers, that's a good word for it. But... It doesn't sound the same. It sounds like a completely different, it's a completely different sound. It's a completely different makeup, really is almost a completely different band. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Each subsequent album was more popular than the last. Foxtrot would reach number 12 in the UK, number one in Italy. Oh, very important. A huge fan base for them to this day. Massive. And would not chart at all in the US, not surprisingly. That's because the word Genesis translates to free butt sex (laughs) in Italian. (laughs) Is that why they're so big in... Italy? That's oh, that makes so sense. big in Italy. Hmm. That might not be true. I'm going to have to double check that. All right. Well, we'll double check that and put it in the show put notes. Put it in the show notes. So this record that we're going to talk about, Selling England by the Pound, would reach number three in the UK and number 70 in the US mm-hmm. and would eventually be their first gold record in the United States. In addition, uh, I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe would become the band's first top 30 single in the UK. Mm-hmm. So... This album was released in 1973, October 13th, 1973. So obviously I was not listening to this record when it was first released, as I would have been 15 months old. First time I listened to this, I was 12. And like most things in my personal music dictionary, it was because of my older brother. At the time, I was not only playing baseball, as you know, but I was also on a travel tennis team. Uh, I really didn't care for the people on that team. Kind of snobby asses. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I and like, we've lost eight viewers that used oh to be on your God. team. Oh, well. That's fine. So I like to bring my Walkman with me and listen to music. And my selections at 12 were pretty limited. I only had recently enrolled in Columbia House Records and lost all of my paper route money to that. Huh. So I probably had uh, 25 tapes or so jammed into a wooden Reuniti wine box that I had stolen from my parents. And that's where Ooh. I kept all my tapes. So it's really cool. And I wanted something new. 
So my brother, Mike, had one of those wall mount cassette holders that had about 50 or 60 in them. And at the time, he was going through this heavy blues phase. So there was a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan, Paladins, stuff like that, that I didn't really relate to at the time because I wasn't nearly bummed out. (laughs) So as I scoured the selections, one name stood out that I hadn't seen before, Genesis. Now, at the time, I had been listening to Genesis' 1982 album, Genesis, with songs like That's All and Mama. And I was kind of getting into that style of music, so I thought, that would be cool. I grabbed it, and it was this record, Sun England by the Pound. So the next day, I had a tennis tournament up in a small town in Michigan called Algonac, right on the shores of Lake St. Clair. Beautiful area. And I didn't listen to the record on the bus. It wouldn't be until later that afternoon between matches that I found a quiet spot in the shade and laid out on a picnic table and put it on. Mind blown. (laughs) I looked at the tape cover because I was sure this wasn't Genesis. It sounded like the games without frontiers and shock the monkey guy singing. That couldn't be right. (laughs) I was really confused. But either way, I was transfixed by it. Uh, My musical vocabulary at the time was Rush and popular music. I hadn't really ventured much beyond those walls. I had heard about progressive music in as much as Pink Floyd which I thought was cool, Rush, which I loved, and Yes, which didn't sound progressive on 90125, so I didn't see what the big deal was, Hmm. because that's where my experience was at that point. And Jethro Tull, which I kind of liked, but didn't get Hmm. yet. So this was something else entirely, and I was addicted to it, and I listened to it for months and months on end, and still listen to it this day. And something about the English sound, that pastoral sound, the musical paintings on the record, the musicianship are just wonderful. And we're going to talk about that record. Yeah. This is a very, very English record. Yes. This is, I mean, this is like a picture of the queen on the wall. Might as well be. I mean, it is, it is, it is, I'm trying to think of a way to say slathering England on some toast. I believe you just did. I just I think I just said that. I think you just said uh, there was slathering a, England on some toast. There's a different toast. phrase in my brain, but we'll go with that. It really is. Uh, You're trying to say if England was a tub of butter? I can't believe it's not Britain. Yes. Yeah, so you would just like, mm, and then. And then <laughs> and then you'd enjoy a little bit of selling England by the pound. Yes. Ah, I like that. But uh, two things that uh, I do think we need to mention about this as well. Very long for, for a record album, a record-based album. Oh, yes. Uh, 53 minutes and 44 seconds. Caused some consternation with Mr. Tony Banks. Indeed it did. Who wanted to leave some things off because in order to compress it and get it on one vinyl, you had to kind of compromise the sound quality. Mm -hmm. And therefore, apparently a lot of the original pressings of this are not quite as good sounding as they should have been. No. Which is unfortunate. But you correct that when you go to, say, tape or CD, Mm -hmm. because they had the original master recordings. So... In all honesty, it didn't sound that great on tape either. Well, the drums were always muffled, and it wasn't until years later when I listened to it like on CD, and I'm like, holy crap, what, yeah. that's what he was doing this whole time? Oh, that's pretty good. It's pretty amazing how much, uh, how much you miss out on because of stuff like that. Sonically speaking? Yeah, because yeah. it's like, oh, the first time I heard this was on cassette, and you can't hear any of the highs or whatever, and then you listen to it again years later in a higher quality format, and it's like, oh, Where's yeah. the tape hiss? Right? How come there's no hiss? Why isn't there that clicking noise at this part in the song? It's not going, oh, yeah. It's not going throughout the whole thing. <laughs> That's weird. 
The other thing I think that we should probably mention, though, sure. is uh, uh, very famously Steve Hackett's favorite of the Genesis albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember if we asked him that in the interview or not, but I hope that we did. He did speak about it. That okay, good. Yes. Um, what did you find out about the cover? Oh, I found out a ton about this album yes. cover. Uh, originally, it's a painting by uh, Betty Swanwick titled The Dream. She was a, her real name is Ada Elizabeth Edith Swanwick R.A. Yes. Well, we which, refer to her as Betty. Yes. Uh, R.A., in case you don't know, stands for uh, Royal Academy of the Arts, which is a very famous art school in uh, England. She worked from the early 1930s all the way up until late 70s. Her early designs, the what she became famous for was she designed a lot of the original London transport posters. Uh, and they're very beautiful, very iconic work. Uh, she also was an author. Uh, she wrote and illustrated several books, uh, including some children's books. A lot of her illustrated books were actually for adults, mm. which I thought was interesting because that time frame to me, like, you know, the idea of manga and comics didn't come around until later. I'm sure they were around, but the idea of writing a picture book for adults it seemed kind of unusual to me. But uh, her work is super, super beautiful. If you want to see some of it, go to uh, chrisbeetles.com forward slash artists forward slash swanwick dash betty dash ra dash rws dash 1915 dash 1989.html. I'll put that link in the show notes oh, so you don't God. have to remember it. Thank but, God. I already uh, forgot what it was. They have a beautiful um, uh, uh, Chris Beetles as a. Um, an art gallery, and they have a bunch of her work on display. Mm. And it's very, I don't know the right term for it. It's its a very specific style. It's very um, minimalist, but I like it a lot. Uh, this cover, however, uh, not necessarily uh, quite so minimalist. It does almost look like a children's book uh, uh, illustration, and it actually influenced uh, the song, uh, I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe. And that's why they asked her if they could use this. Well, they asked her if she could make something for them. Correct. And she didn't have enough time. So they said, well, can you take this work and add a lawnmower to it? So she did. So she did. So the original does not have the lawnmower on it. This one does. They are very big fans of this record, uh, of this album cover as mm-hmm. a whole. Like generally, the everyone in the band, this is their favorite of their album covers. They loved the painting because it has this idyllic British setting uh, which was perfect for the sound of the record. And they wanted it, so Tony and Peter uh, went down to talk to her. And the story they tell is great. Hmm. So apparently, she was a very eccentric older lady, and uh, she served them tea outside in her garden and had her table on the side of the hill. So everything was kind of sliding off the table, <laughs> but she didn't really bother with it. So Tony and Peter were constantly trying to keep the tea from falling off the table during their whole conversation. <laughs> and she was oblivious to it. And they also said that she had a pet parrot that when they went to the garden, sat on Peter's shoulder and kept nibbling at his collar. And he said he could never tell if she was talking to him or the parrot when she would ask a question. <laughs> so it's just a great story. <laughs> they like That awesome. kind of stuff is like, and so they basically begged, you know, begged her to to do this and modify it because she couldn't paint something new because originally they wanted her to paint something original. Yeah. And she didn't have enough time. So it's like, can you do this and modify it? Which they did. So it's just a great story. <laughs> That's cool. For something like that. Again, you don't <laughs> just don't get stories like that. Anymore. No, you don't. Perfect. <clears throat> Wonderfully British it is. Very, very British. Just like the album cover. 
which is very. You have rich. anything else? Are you ready? No, let's go do to it. Track by track. Let's switch into the track by track. Track by track. First song is Dancing with a Moonlit Night. This is such a curious mix. I love it. What do you mean? It is very folk music and prog rock in one song. Yeah. And it's very, um, and it kind of switches back and forth a little bit. And I think that this is such a good opener for this album because it is kind of the switch from the old sound to the new sound. And that's with, with the introduction of Steve Hackett. Right. Uh, one of the most fantastic openings of any song, in my opinion, that stark line right out of the beginning. Can you tell me where my country lies? Set the uniform to his true love's eyes. You are instantly transported into another place and time. Peter Gabriel was renowned by this point for his stage presence, whether that be the makeup he would wear or the absolutely insane outfits he would wear. For instance, during the tour on Foxtrot, he would wear a red dress with this giant fox head, or he would put on fluorescent makeup, a cape, and bat wings when he performed Watcher in the Skies. So he had a knack for this stuff. So this would be no different. Uh, He would perform this song with a helmet and chest piece, like a British soldier. But to him, he was not a soldier at all. He was the embodiment of Britain himself. And he was known very well for making up these stories when they were performing. It was born out of his need to fill time in the early days when their you know, sound equipment wasn't as reliable. Mm-hmm. And shit would break, so he had to just talk and make up stories. So on this tour, before they performed Dancing with the Moonlit Night, he would say something like this. I am in the English Channel. It is cold exceedingly wet i am the voice of britain before the daily express my name is britannia this is my song it's called dancing with the moonlit night so delivered in his very dry yeah british way i know that he changed it up a lot too because there's a picture of him doing that uh uh wearing a union jack dress <laughs> with a lance and a big helmet yeah yeah uh, which yeah. is supposed to be the uh, personification of britannia which is that's yeah. just how he was yeah but as is most of this record this song is absolutely loaded with puns and a lot of it are puns that only the british fan would understand yes uh, it was definitely an elegy, a desperate pining for a lost England that Gabriel doesn't think exists anymore. Uh, right off the bat, there's the unifon word, which is a callback to ancient English mythology, even though it doesn't really exist. Because hmm. it's a unicorn mixed with a fawn, with a yeah. deer, hooved or horned animal that seems to represent ancient England. There's a lot of inspiration here from the Arthurian legends too, right? Very much. I mean, it just, uh, that's always been a weird English thing to me because there's not a lot of evidence to support that it was ever real. It's definitely a myth. It's a legend. Yeah. But so many people take it as, as fact and it's so ingrained into the British uh, history and the British mindset of what England was at some point that it's, it might as well be history. It might as well be. It's a weird little piece. I believe most people take it as fact. Yeah. That 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 happened. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, The the most obvious pun is the title of the album, Hmm. uh, Selling by the Pound, which is in the next line. It's And it's really just clever wordplay. 
It is common in Britain for certain items to be sold by the pound. The price is dependent on the weight of the item. can also refer to the pound, which is British currency. Hmm. Concept of selling England by the pound is a surreal concept, but this it's totally loaded with stuff like that. Makes references to the Knights of the Green Shield. The Green Shield being a shopping scheme in the UK where you would trade stamps for items in a catalog. Hmm. Also, he says, chewing through your wimpy dreams. Wimpy was slash is a fast food restaurant in England. So in all, all of this goes by in an instant to the casual listener because it's so closely associated with the British. It would be like someone listening to the Beastie Boys in London for the first time and hearing all the references to White Castle and not knowing what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> what, what's the Bronx? <laughs> but it was, it was for sure a song and record for their home country. And music-wise, it's brilliant. That was written by Peter Gabriel, who designed the piano parts, and Steve Hackett, who put together a ton of shapes over top of it. And it has this really unusual structure with bridges and verses and choruses used all over the song, not in really any particular order. Um, the guitar solo has some unique elements, and we asked Steve Hackett about it. Uh, so it's got some guitar moments that I think um, stand the test of time. He said immodestly, um, if you listen to uh, you know the first track, Dancing with the Moonlit Night, you, you, for instance, you get a guitar solo that features tapping, sweet picking, and um, octave jumps. And, you know, th these are all things that have become a part of the uh, sort of um, the glossary of terms for the modern shredder. Um, um, but it was... Um, Let's put it this this way. In 1973, people weren't doing that at, at, at that point. And um, I'd started doing tapping, which was a technique later named by Eddie Van Halen. But I've been doing it since 1971, so you can hear it on those Genesis albums. And um, I think other musicians picked up on us uh, before the media did. And people like Brian May said it was an influence and... Um, and, and other other guitarists who said very very nice things and this is what that solo sounds like I had a really weird epiphany yeah? about this guitar solo. Go ahead. Just yesterday, in fact, when I was re-listening to this. Um, I was sitting, you know, it's a great guitar solo. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. All right, you know, it's good. It's good. Mm -hmm. uh, it occurred to me yesterday when I was listening to this again, that it is yet another instance where you don't think about firsts. So by that, I mean, this was 1973. Correct. That sounds exactly like... 
the type of guitar solo you would hear in mid-80s hair metal. Absolutely. It sounds exactly like the type of stuff you would hear early 80s, maybe 1979 rock and roll. Yes, that's who was influencing yes. Eddie Van Halen and all these people coming along after him. Exactly. Yes. And it's another one of those things where you don't think about it. You listen to it and you're like, ah, it's pretty good. You don't think about who did this stuff first, first. afterwards because it's so common in, in your, your lexicon. You know, it's so ingrained in you to be like, okay, this is, you know, uh, that's what a rock and roll guitar solo sounds like. Correct. This had to be one of the first ones. And I, I, I should have gone and looked it up. Instead, I went to bed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens. Uh, yeah, well, uh, but uh, I should have gone and looked it up and seen if there were other, I, I can't imagine that there were too many others this early No, that sounded like this. There's a really obscure, I can't remember his name, and I... I thought thought to write it down and then I forgot. There's a really obscure guitarist from like 1966 mm-hmm. that supposedly was the first person to do the tapping slash sweep picking okay. method, but it wasn't of any consequence. Yeah, really. it was just it was a method, right? And not a lot of people heard it, but this was the first instance of of really popularizing that to any degree and people going back and referencing it going i want to play guitar solo like dancing with the moonlit night and it became a huge influence for guitarists like eddie like Ingve malmstein who regularly references this record as a big huge influence so yeah, yeah it's yeah. huge steve in that interview referenced citizens of hope and glory in this song mm-hmm. that was uh one more little piece for the british apparently this is a mocking reference to Edward Elger's patriotic 1902 song, Land of Hope and Glory. Of course. Obviously, everybody knows Often that. known as Pomp and Circumstance. Mm, of course. Well, you know what Pomp and Circumstance. Yeah, yeah it's played at every graduation. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Mm, yeah. And it's chock full of these kind of references all over the place. So, couple, uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, in case you do not know, uh, one of my previous jobs- Oh, boy. Uh, every year I would have to do, uh, several graduations as part of the, uh, oh, yeah, you told audio me that, video where it lighting just gets played thing. over and over again. And too. I would have to hear that song about 30 times in less than a week. You still love it, don't you? I hate that song. Oh, I, it comes on and I have to get up and leave. It's a weird reaction. I thought I know. love it. So a couple more things about this song. It is sampled by Outcast hmm. on a song called Spotty Adi Dopalicious. Which is just awesome. You have to listen to it. The fact that they are sampling a prog rock song from 1973 is just awesome. Also, in 2016, Sting and Peter Gabriel toured together and played on each other's songs. And Pete did this song for the first time in 32 years. And it's really great. Oh, cool. Because, obviously, the sound technology and everything has improved so dramatically over the past 32 years that... You're hearing it kind of wide open. It's it, it, yeah. it's the clarity is fantastic. It sounds really good, but it's it's just a really good version of it. Uh, one last thing about this song. Mm. So if you listen to the very end of the song, with all of the kind of lilting acoustic guitar parts and very chimey quiet parts, uh, that was supposed to lead into another song on the record called "After the Ordeal," which we talked about later, uh, which we will talk about later. Yeah, uh, those were supposed to be connected parts. Uh, but because they had released uh, the 22-minute Supper's Ready the year before on Foxtrot, the band decided that they didn't want to repeat that and have another giant piece. So they split them and moved the other song to the second side of the record. Just a little fact to it about oh, that. Very cool. That they kind of broke it up. So, so uh, we're going to take a quick break here. 
uh, and we'll be right back. So the next song is I Know What I Like, In Your Wardrobe. Ooh, hello. Hello. This song is the band's first foray into what is considered popular music. Mm -hmm. It was the first charting single of their career, topping out at number 21 on the UK chart. But in true progressive rock style, they refused to play it on television to promote it for many years. (laughs) Very, uh, very prog rock. Phil Collins would refer to this as their, quote, Beatle moment. Ooh, that's some, saying something. Apparently, he hadn't got to that point of his career yet where he would have much larger Beatle moments. <laughs> the song starts out with this great low-end Mellotron note that Tony Banks played to try and emulate the sound of a lawnmower. And it almost enters psychedelia a little bit. Yeah. All this bizarre instrumentation. Um, and it tells the totally relatable story of a guy named Jacob who is a lawnmower. And despite everyone in his life wanting him to go and, quote, do great things, he is completely content doing what he loves, and that's mowing lawns. He knows what he likes, and he likes what he knows. Right. And there's such great poetry and meaning in there, especially for a kid of 12 when I was listening to to it for the first time. So much could be said, you know, about music helping form personalities or enhancing a personality, and I think there's a lot to it for me. It helped to define who I was. It reinforced things that I was already thinking about at 12. You know, it allowed me to realize that there were people everywhere that felt the same way about stuff that I did. Wait, other people have feelings too? That's bullshit. <laughs> Mind right? blown. It's so reassuring knowing that everyone may expect these things out of you, these great things, but not everyone does great things. And the pressure that you feel to live up to those expectations can be stifling and choking. I want to be happy and content, whatever it is I go and do, but let it be that. Let it be what I want to do and be happy for me when I find it, even if it isn't what you wanted for me. You know, It's quite a powerful sentiment to be listening to that and, and know, yeah, I don't have to be a doctor or president or an astronaut. You know, Maybe if I mow lawns and that makes me happy and I'm able to provide for myself and that's how I want to live my life, then Great. Yeah, yeah, do it. Shouldn't I do that? I think that it's uh, also like kind of an an indictment of of what was going on in England at the time, mm. where everybody was saying, "I know what I like, and I like what I know." It was this sort of we don't want to expand, we don't want to be involved with anybody else, we don't want to, uh, uh, you know, reach out. Where England, where you know, they were coming off that period of decol- decolonization, decolonization, yeah. Where they basically, in case you don't know what that is, they basically handed a lot of their colonies uh, their independence. And, uh, uh, you know, so for the first time, Britain was shrinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were also, at the same time, they had just joined the predecessor to the European Union, uh, the European Commercial Zone, zone, I want to say. Yeah. Should have written it down. Yeah, and they had started to expand to this point where they could now, you know, they were considering themselves part of Europe. 
And it was very much in the mindset of a lot of people like, no, we, we shouldn't do this. We're Britain. We need to be British. Hmm. We need to be separate. We need to, to be, you know, England above all type of a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, for better or worse, that, that's what was happening at the time in the early 70s. For sure. Uh, well, we spoke to Steve about this last week, and he yeah. talked a little bit about this song and what it meant to him, and uh, here's what he had to say. I mean, the first hit single we had, I Know What I Like, was based on a jam, which was something that, that I used to do with, with Phil. There was the the underlying riff the song is, is built on. Uh, we used to jam away on it, Phil and I, and um, the band joined in, and it, it had been a, a reject from the, the, the previous year's uh, sessions for Foxtrot, uh, but you know, some sometimes it's like last year's rejects can become um, tomorrow's. Um, I was going to say gems, and um, the single took off, and uh, everyone was very very happy. So for me, uh, while I love the guitar and keyboard uh, keyboard keyboard parts throughout the keyboard, uh, the best part of this song is Mike Rutherford's bass line. Oh yeah. There weren't a lot of times in the Genesis catalog that I would even take notice of the bass, especially in the later years, uh, because a lot of times there was nothing more than Tony Banks playing these plodding bass keyboard pads because there were only three people in the band. So he just kind of had to go. But the song. But Wait, this song. I'm sorry. How did that go? Oh, no. Okay. I get it now. But this song, the bass like really shined through, which is unique in Genesis catalog. Uh, this song was also covered a couple times over the years. Uh, one is by GTR, which is a band formed by Steve Hackett and Steve Howe from Yes, somewhere in the mid-80s. Uh, they had one minor hit called When the Heart Ruled the Mind, which is a great song. And the other version is by Fish, a friend of Audio Judo, mm. who put out a covers album uh, in the early 90s called Songs from the Mirror. Uh, at the early part of the career, he was called uh, early part of his career he was called a Peter Gabriel sound alike, which isn't really accurate. But uh, doing a cover version of a Gabriel song and doing a completely different cover version uh, was a nice straight ahead way to kind of deal with that and set himself apart. Um, it's a it's an interesting version. The fact that they didn't call their band Genesis question mark yes exclamation point is very upsetting to me. They should have. Right? It would have been Genesis? Yes. Yes. <laughs> we don't know who you are. Yeah. It would have worked great. Uh next song is Firth of Fifth. I cannot for the life of me pronounce the name of this song. Firth of Fifth? But it does have this fantastic piano opening by Tony Banks. Yeah, well we should hear that right oh. now.
in an interview with Song Facts, uh, Tony Banks said, uh, it was just following the idea of a river, and then I got a bit caught up in the cosmos, and I don't quite know where I ended up, actually. But it just about <laughs> stands up, I think, for the song. For me, musically, it's got two or three really strong moments in it, and fortunately, they really carried us along. It's become one of the Genesis classics, and I'm very happy for that. I agree. Ugh. So this classical element of a rock song has vexed me and held my thoughts for so many years. So it has so hounded me that whenever I met anyone that had a significant amount of talent on the piano, I would beg them to learn this. <laughs> Keyboardists in my band would get so sick of me asking for Firth of Fifth that they would learn the first four or five notes just to tease me with it and then walk away. <laughs> I would eventually beg my three sons, each who can play the piano, to learn it and play it. Come on, do, you know, do the old man a solid. Give me a Christmas <laughs> present, Father's Day gift, birthday serenade, and play it for me. I even found the sheet music for it and bought it, gave it to him. But alas, no one has learned it yet. Oh, that's uh, sad. It is, for me, one of the most perfect progressive rock songs. It is absolutely Genesis at the height of their power. Every single person on this song shines in their own way. From the opening piano bit to what many consider to be the best guitar solo that Steve Hackett ever played. Maybe one of the best guitar solos of all time. I agree. It is a solo for the ages. Tony Banks said in an interview that that whole part happened quite by accident. Uh, they had been playing it live, and Tony had intended for that section to be just a piano and flute melody. And Steve started soloing o over it, and it turned into this big bombastic thing, and Tony was turned off until he started to see it unfold and play out before him. And he really loved it at that point, so they began to play it that way. And it's such a great solo by itself, but in the context of the song, it's utterly gorgeous. Just fits so perfectly. Yeah. And lyrically, there's the obvious pun of the name. Firth of Forth is an estuary in Scotland off of the River Forth. And because this song deals so heavily in river and water imagery, this becomes an example of what, of that uh, kind of British sense of humor, very dry. Um, <laughs> lyrics, like you say, were written by Tony Banks, um, and he kind of disowned them over the years, saying he missed at the attempt. Mm. I disagree. I love the lyrics, and they are probably my favorite on the record. Hmm. That opening stanza, and so with gods and men, the sheep remain inside their pen, though many times they've seen the way to leave, has very biblical and spiritual references for me. Uh, like I've said a bunch on this episode, I was 12 and I was questioning my faith in all those things we question as adolescents. And this had so much power to me, the sheep being the believers and the door is open. You know the truth and the door is open, but you stay inside because it's safe there and you're afraid to go outside of that safety. And I had made up my mind that I wasn't going to be like that. And again, this music offered that reassurance that people also felt that way. Whether or not that was what the song was supposed to be about is irrelevant because that's, you know, that's what it meant to me. Yeah. And that's, it was very important. You know, we talk about records coming alongside of you, like entering your life at pivotal moments and whether or not it was ever, whether or not they meant whatever they were they ended up meaning for you, whatever that, if, if it was never that intention, it is that important to you at the moment. And I think that's a, that's a huge thing, especially for this record. Oh yeah. You know, my grandfather, when I was pretty small, once told me something that for whatever reason has absolutely stuck with me through my whole life. He said that words have two types of power to them. 
They have the power of the person speaking them, and they have the power of the person hearing them. Mm. And to me, and that's always meant, you know, obviously when somebody speaks, they have intention behind their words, but you will never 100% know what that intention was. Because every single person that hears those words Interprets will have a completely different interpretation. Is this your grandfather? This is my grandfather. Is the one that's still alive? Uh, both of them are still alive. Oh, so I still need to meet these guys. These guys sound like fantastic people. My one grandpa is, uh, sadly, he's pretty much confined to a, a, oh. an old age home now. And especially because of COVID, he's right. not really allowed to leave right now. That's sad. My other grandfather is 95 most people see him and they're like, what are you, like 60, 65? <laughs> I got to meet this guy. He sounds fantastic. He's, uh, he skied until he was 87 years old. I love this man already. Um, and he uh, he would still golf if it didn't hurt his arms too much. Mm. He goes once or twice a year still, I think. <sighs> but uh, yeah, sometime. Is he in Salt Lake? He is. Oh, I'll go up there. If you're ever up there. Yep. That's happening. Uh, and that goes for anybody out there in the uh, the audience as well. If you want to go visit my grandparents, <laughs> call me, email me. I will uh, set up a meeting. Uh <laughs> That'd be fucking weird. So, Grandma, I do this thing called a podcast, all What's right? What's that? I, so I talk to people through a microphone and the internet. That's crazy. And a bunch of them want to come to your house and have sandwiches and cookies. I'll make sandwiches. Okay. So, uh, yeah. They're, uh, they're April, on their way. April 14th. They're coming to your house, They're grandma. coming. Oh, my God. 3,000 people show up at my grandma's house oh, for right. cookies and sandwiches. So one more thing about this we song. We have 3,000. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yes, maybe, we do. Maybe. 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 Yeah, we do. One more thing about this song. Mm. So there's a line in it that says, uh, "Undinal songs urge the sailors on." Ooh, and God damn it, Genesis! If he didn't make me look up words as a young kid. <laughs> so an undine is an elemental being in the theory of Parcelsus inhabiting water. So in other words, it is a water nymph. Ooh, and if you listen, if you read the lyrics, knowing that. It makes total sense. In no way I know that unless I look it up. So, see, Mom, music's making me smarter. Well, there you go. Yeah, she's looking down on me like, you're always talking about music. <laughs> More fool me. More fool me. Yes, it's next song. So you come out of this progressive blitz that is Firth of Fifth mm -hmm. and get greeted by this lovely, lilting love song. Yes, this song does not get a lot of love in the Genesis repertoire. I can see why. It's not a bad song. I always thought it was not, beautiful. Uh, it's not. Also, doesn't. It is weird on this album. I, and I think it's a. Mm, what do we want to call it? Palette cleanser. Okay. Something that. Okay. So vocals on the first of all vocals on this song are handled by Phil Collins. Mm -hmm. Second time. Second time he sang. Yes, he sang on a song called Four Absent Friends" on Nursery Crime as mm -hmm. well. And giving you glimpses of what he would eventually become in his solo career. He was really good at the love songs, the broken-hearted song. He's yeah. very good at that. And from what I've heard about this song, it was written by Mike Rutherford and Phil Collins during a break in rehearsals while they were just sitting on the stoop, you know, just sitting on a porch waiting for something else to happen and just start strumming the guitar and blingo blango, here's the song. Uh, Matthew, the band is called uh, Oingo Boingo. Oh, not Blingo not Blango? Blingo Blango. <laughs> and I don't think they had anything to do with Genesis. I'm not positive. Oh, I'm sorry. You were just... That's all right. all right. You know what? That's all right. Randy will just take that right out of there. Yeah, I'll just cut that right out. It's no problem. So I've, I've been on a bunch of Genesis sites leading up to this. And this song is kind of a touchstone for a lot of people. So there are some that just love this song because it is, it's a nicely written song. And some... They just write this off, as one put it, drivel 
drivel, drivel. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to see with hindsight that this is the direction the band would end up going. Yeah. But there's no way to know that at the time. There was never any intention of Phil becoming the singer or writing love songs and the like. So saying that this was the first step towards their decline is a little ridiculous. Yeah. Is it the finest love song ever written? No. But it is a nice little piece and fitting closer to side one of a great record? Yes. And when Gabriel calls your song quite a breakthrough, as he did, you probably feel pretty good. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, to me, it is that palate cleanser. It's like there, there's so much noise and information going on on this record that this little, this little right in the middle, you're like, oh, hmm. deep breath. I like the okay. idea of uh, it being a palate cleanser. Yeah. And also, if I'm honest, uh, if Peter Gabriel called me a, a piece of gum stuck on the bottom of his shoe, he called, yeah, I'd anything. probably feel pretty good about myself. He called me anything <laughs> at all. Am I bubble? Am I a cherry flavored or bubble gum? He'd say it like this. He'd go, um, um, Kyle is a piece of um, gum on a shoe. <laughs> and everyone would would clap. I'd, You're like, why did it take you an hour and a half to get that out of your mouth? I'd fan myself. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Gabriel. <laughs> He's just uh, very deliberate. He is. But that leads you to the beginning of uh, side two. Yeah, flip it over. The Battle of Epping Forest. Yo. Well, <laughs> while more fool me is prettily... Prettily? Pretty easily discernible. Pretty easily. As to its subject matter and lyrics, this song that opens the second side would require a scalpel and a literature degree mm. to analyze. This is, <laughs> this is without a doubt one of the densest songs I have ever listened to. I remember pretty vividly the first day I heard this song back at that tennis tournament. And I remember just being like, what the hell did he just say? Yeah. And what is he talking about? So you know what it's supposedly based on. Right? I do. I do. Would you like to go ahead? So supposedly, uh, there was a news story about two gangs fighting in Epping Forest, uh, and uh, I believe it was Phil or uh, Peter, Peter Gabriel. Gabriel. Sorry, I was about to say Phil Collins. Peter Gabriel, when thinking of, he had this idea of the story in his head, and he went to look it up, and he couldn't find any information about it. And he's he was you know I swear I read this in a newspaper somewhere. He looked through a bunch of old newspapers, couldn't find any information about it. So he made it up. He made up a bunch of yeah. characters, and he made up a bunch of stories, and they uh, wrote this song about two gangs fighting in Epping Forest. Right. Uh, which, consequently, do you know anything about Epping Forest? I do. Oh, do you want to No, start? you go ahead. You, you sure? Yeah, yeah, I'll circle back around. As I say, uh, Epping Forest is a 2,400 hectare, or 5,900 acre, area of ancient woodland between Epping and Essex to the north, and Forest Gate in Greater London to the south, straddling the border between London and Essex. Uh, yeah, a little boring, but uh, East used London to be, used so. to be considered a a, a royal forest, uh, meaning that nobody could hunt there uh, without permission of the royals. You go fox hunting there? You could, but only if you had permission from the royal family. I see. It's now managed by the city of London. Basically, I forget if it was Queen Victoria, I believe, gave it back to the people. She said, "This so is so generous of right? her." Right? I mean, you know, hey, this forest is for my people. <laughs> I assume she said something like that. I probably and that then immediately, exact thing. <laughs> this is going to be a reference nobody gets, but then immediately afterwards she said, these trees smell of cum. <laughs> no, 
No, I don't get that. All right, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Please do. It's from. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I forget what. There's a British sketch comedy show. Uh, man, I can't remember which one it is now. But they uh, there's this apparently America as a, a peace offering in 1876 sent uh, Britain a bunch of these. I want to say yew trees, but maybe it's not. But apparently when they bloom, the blooms smell like semen. <laughs> and they did a skit where it's, uh, it's it, oh, the show is called That Michelin Web Look. And one of them, one of Mitch, uh, I believe it's uh, one of the two comedians is dressed up as Queen Victoria. And she says to this guy who's supposed to be the prime minister, she says, these trees smell of cum. <laughs> and he says, madam. You could, Queen Victoria cannot say the word come. I am wearing 12 layers of clothing. I am sweating and horrible and disgusting because the age that we live in demands it. And this age would be ruined if anyone knew that Queen Victoria said that the trees smell of come. So what you're saying is the Battle of Epping Forest is... This album's fuck song. No, actually, uh, oh. that comes uh, shortly. Oh, all right then. <laughs> comes <Yeah>. shortly. <laughs> uh, however, yes, go on. Uh, oh, there's more. There, there's more. Uh, somewhat importantly for our times, uh, in Daniel Defoe's novel, uh, a journey, a journal of the plague year, written in 1722. Oh, that's that's in our time. Well. Yeah, plague year. Oh, oh, ah, oh, I see. see, see I see what you're I, yes. A group of Londoners uh, tried to escape the f- plague by settling uh, in Epping Forest. Oh. Also, uh, most important probably to you and I, uh, 1975, the, the Black Knight sequence from Monty Python <laughs> of the Holy Grail was filmed in Epping Forest. I do know that. I had that down. Yes. I thought that you might. Yes. But I'm glad you covered it. But uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is a very dense... Uh, a, a multi-layered song. You think? Yeah. So for the longest time, because there was no internet, you know, and I didn't have the LP, so I didn't have the lyrics, I had to guess at a lot of the words. Mm-hmm. And man, I misheard so many of these. <laughs> so for, for the longest time, I thought this was about Robin Hood, and Epping Forest was just yes. substituting in for Sherwood Forest, but I was incorrect. He does mention... Robin Hood and yes. Little John in the song, but they are just wordplay as he is actually saying Robin Hood, not Robin Hood. So my feeling is that to accurately break this song down would take an episode all by itself because mm. there's just so much in it. And you've covered, you know, what it's more or less about. But but Peter like created everything. So he created all these characters for it, like Liquid Len. Liquid Len, by the way, is Based on an actual person, hmm. it's a lighting director who was became famous in the early seventies. It was Liquid Len and his Lensman, and ah. he worked up until I guess twenty fifteen. He was wow. like everyone, so it's just name dropping Liquid. Yeah. Len. So Liquid Len, Bob the Knob, the Mick Be- the Prick, Bethnal Green Butcher, Harold Demure, all products of Peter's very, very active imagination. Uh, his premise being that it's all pointless because they were all fighting for the leaders of the gangs, and those leaders weren't fighting at all. They had arrived in limos just to watch. Yeah. And at the end of the huge fight, it turns out it's a draw, so the leaders of the gang flip a coin to decide who wins. It's a very political statement mm. guised in all of this theater. So what tends to get lost in all of this lyrical gymnastics is how Pete is delivering this song. 
This is really the only time on this particular record that he does what he normally does and would continue to do on his last release with Genesis, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. He uses this song to inhabit every character. He uses different accents, different vocal deliveries. He goes high, he goes low, he mimics women. That's the kind of theater that he had been cultivating over the last several years, and maybe they were trying to simplify their arrangements on other songs, but this is the only one that that style gets used. Here's an example of what I'm talking about from this song. Louise, is the reverend hard to please? Oh, tell me! Perhaps so. If it's not too late, we could interest you in our old-fashioned Staffordshire plate. Oh, no, not me. I'm a man of repute. But the devil caught hold of my soul. And the voice called out, Shoot! To save my steeple, I visited people, for this I'd gone when I met little John. His name came, I understood when the judge said, You are a robbing hood. He told me of his strange foundation, conceived inside of the word Stop Nation. He'd had to hide his reputation. Salvation from door to door, but now with a pinup guru every week, it was love, peace, and truth incorporated. So good. Yeah, I think this is a really, really good example of of uh, like avant-garde prog rock. Mm. It, it really, it's all over the place. It has very, very strong musical backings. It's very. Almost jagged, I guess is a good word for it, in the way that it's delivered. But it's 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 very interesting to listen to. Well, apparently, like, the music bits had all been worked out, like, separately. So they, they had basically written the song. Phil and Steve, Tony and Mike all wrote the song, and they had been playing it for a while. And Peter came in at the very end, and he was like, okay, I'm going to put my lyrics over it. And they were all kind of, like, taken aback, like oh my God, there's so many of them. (laughs) Like Phil Collins especially was like, that's like everything else gets watered down because he's jamming these huge pieces of prose over top of their, uh, of these music bits. And that's, that's what kind of gets lost in the song is the musicianship that's going on here. There's all these really weird little passages throughout some really great guitar riff stuff. It's a lot to listen to, but I think it's just right for this record. It fits in nicely. But, uh, but because the song is so dense, there's no way we could do it justice. So we'll put a link in the show notes to, to the entire lyric sheet. Ooh. And you can explore it if you want, but it's definitely interesting because there's just so much going on. After the ordeal. So aptly named. Yes. So uh, this is a, an acoustic song uh, written by Steve Hackett. Yep. I still feel like if it was intentionally, you said that it was supposed to go on the first side of the album. Yeah, it was supposed to go at the end of Dancing with the Moon the Night. Yeah. I feel like when it was moved here, it could have been renamed After the Battle, mm-hmm. which would have fit. But I think it was left as sort of a knock because Peter Gabriel was fighting with Tony to <laughs> not have it on the album, right? Yeah, very much so, yes. To to just kick this off the album and say no 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 we gotta we gotta get rid of this it's gonna make the album too long. You suggesting that Battle of Epping Forest was an ordeal. 
Yes. Yes, and it's an aptly named song then, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. That's uh yeah. This is the this is the come down from all of what's going on in the last song. Tony Banks could not stand this song and didn't want it on the record at all, which would have been unfortunate because it's my favorite musical moment on mm -hmm. the record. When we spoke to uh, Steve Hackett about this song, uh, he had this to say about it. After the ordeal, let me see. Um, it was originally going to be an electric guitar solo, and I think it was, um, I think it was good harmonically, um, but it didn't really swing. Uh, trying to play it with the band, uh, it was only once we changed it to an acoustic number and. Um, and Tony started to accompany the the lead line on on nylon guitar with um, with a very busy piano part, which I think is 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 still a great a great part, you know. Um, and um, and so you've got the simplicity of the line, and you've got the florid keyboard accompaniment. Um, then it goes into an electric section. Um, the, 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 the melody at the beginning of the electric section is is originally Mike Rutherford's, and then it reverts to my melody again at at the end for the for the, for the close. So the first bit's mine. The, the the second bit really is 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 Mike's, and then it and then it's mine again. So it's a bit like kicking around a football, isn't it? You know, you're you're you're. Um, you pass the ball, or it's a bit like a relay race. Somebody takes the bat, and somebody takes the ball by the horns and um, takes it to the next stage. I think it worked very much like that with um, with Genesis, and, and, and many things were, were based on, on, on jams. So I just think it is one of the beautiful mu moments of music that you never forget. So coming from a hard rock background of Rush and arena rock like I did, these instrumental moments of softness incorporating all kinds of styles and sounds was just so wonderfully eye-opening to this musical palette. I mean, throw in some flute and 12-string guitar, and it's just so good. It sounds like this. started out all electric yep and they couldn't figure out how to make it work so they changed the beginning to be more of a acoustic in fact it was the first time steve hackett played nylon string guitar correct uh, for genesis and i think they made the right decision yeah it's such it's whew. it's a great song it's it's beautifully written and played and uh, i have no more superlatives other than that it's just yeah. it's such a great song it's good please go listen to this one right <laughs> And then it leads into a uh, cinema show. The cinema show. Definitely the song that the band as a whole is most proud of. Mm -hmm. uh, this song would live, albeit in many different forms, it's part of the live show for decades. 
And as you know, Genesis is going back on tour next year. I would not oh, yeah. be surprised if it's resurrected again and into a bit of a different form, but still. The cinema show was and is the quintessential prog rock piece with flute, 12-string pastoral sounding guitar work, and of course, the mother of all keyboard solos. Uh, this song was written by Tony Banks, both lyrically and musically, but presents itself as more of a jam piece after some of the lyric stuff, lyrical stuff is out of the way. Uh, the beginning of the song tells the tale of a Romeo and Juliet getting ready for a date with each other from their personal points of view. So the lyrics are based, partially based, on T.S. Eliot's uh, poem, The Wasteland, yeah. and borrows a lot of the star-crossed lover's plot from that. But it kind of changes its scope a little bit. Music changes, the lyrics change. However, it's still based on The Wasteland. Well, it's it's very closely based on The Wasteland. Yeah. I, I've got a snippet here. Go ahead. From uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Uh, the typist home at tea time clears her breakfast, lights her stove, and lays out food in tins. Out of the window, perilously spread her drying combinations touched by the sun's last rays. On the divan are piled at night her bed, stocking slippers, camisoles, and stays. I, Tereasus, old man of the wrinkled dugs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. I, too, awaited the expected guest. He, the young man, carbuncular, arrives, a small house agent's clerk, with one bold stare, one of the low on whom assurance sits, as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. The time is now proprietous, as he guesses the meal is ended. She is bored and tired, endeavors to engage her in caresses, which still are unproven, if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once, exploring hands encounter no defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. Beautiful. Beautiful poem. It is, that is like, no, thank you. Yeah, thank right? You. Uh, that is uh, not even one twentieth. Oh poem. yeah, it is no, gigantic. It's, yeah, it's big, very dense. But uh, I will put a link in the show notes to a, a, an open source copy of it. So the uh, first line of the second part is "Take a little trip back with Father Terry Sis." I can when, never pronounce. See, that. when I was a kid, I thought he was saying "Father Terry says." Ah, three separate words, and I was like, "All right, Father Father Terry, it is." And only later, sometime in the 90s, when I got the CD that had the lyric sheet in it, did I go, what the hell is a Father Terriusus? So I looked it up. Hmm. Terriusus was the seer of Thebes. The gods were once arguing about who enjoyed sex more, men oh. or women. To settle the question, they employed a wise human. Being absolute believers in empiricism, they sent the usually male Terriusus to Earth as a newly minted female in order to gain the experiences to settle the argument. Hmm. When he returned to Olympus with his results, the god quizzed the gods quizzed him with the question, "Who enjoys sex more?" Terriusus answered, "Were I to divide the pleasure humans experience into a portion of ten, men enjoy sex a value of three, and women a value of seven. Hmm. The proud male gods, very angry, struck Terriusus blind on the spot. If I remember correctly, they also gave him the power of prognostication, but withheld any ability to convince anyone else of his visions. Hmm. So, so that, uh, that along with the lyrics, you know what that means. Go ahead. This is a 10 minute and 41 second long fuck, fuck song. It's pretty much all it is. <laughs> yeah. So then there's the line that compares woman to earth and man to water and says there's in fact more earth 
than sea. Now, we know the Earth's surface is 70% water, mm -hmm. but that's just the surface. Mm. Under the water is more Earth, so there's way more Earth than sea, which I thought was a clever bit of wordplay from guys who are only 23 years old. <laughs> that's pretty worldly stuff right there. And, you know, it's fascinating material. And again, music can make you do strange things like study literature and mythology. But it really was an education all the way around, not just musically. Uh, the song that then takes a lot of bends and turns with some great jam parts by Phil Collins and Steve Hackett, and then closes with a four and a half minute keyboard solo by Tony Banks. And here's a little piece right here. instrument that he's playing there is called the ARP Pro Soloist, which was one of the first commercially successful preset synthesizers. Right. So unlike like a, a Moog synthesizer where you had to sort of patch it and program it to make the sound that you wanted, yeah. this only made one sound, but it did it right out of the box. Right. And I can see why they played this song forever in their shows. It's definitely a showcase piece for the keyboardist. Yeah. And it's fun to play. Um, Steve Hackett had some stuff to say about playing this live with his current band. I know they're very proud of, of, of Cinema Show, which um, is not an easy number to pull off live, um, um, even though uh, a lot of us are playing accompanying parts. Nonetheless, the changes and um, the way it works, where it's really the keyboard that takes it to the next level, for, for the end, there's just something that I know that the band loved playing that with, a, with a passion. So um, I, I suspect they value it more than than the original team who uh, who put it together. Who who figure uh, you know, it's 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 an out outworn older model and um, sleeker MTV approved model is is where it's at. So the last song, Isle of Plenty, mm. and this brings. The whole album full circle. Yeah, it's a perfect bookend. Right? Not only do we get a repeat of the melody from Dancing with the Moonlit Night, but we also get a lyrical reprise with more references to supermarkets and a whole bunch of tongue-in-cheek references. Very British. Lines like, thankful for her fine fare discount. Tess cooperates. Fine fare is a supermarket chain in England. And so is Tesco. Tess cooperates. Or... Tesco operates. Fun little bits. Aha! Uh -huh. Right? Little, play. little bits. I love those little bits. And then break it down even further. The last sung lines that kind of wrap around one another like a round at the end are all grocery store items being sung out by Pete and Phil. Hmm. The first one is English ribs of beef bone in 47 pence a pound and so forth. So... 
I had no idea what he was singing about for the longest time until I saw it written down. And even then, I really, you really have to pay attention, but it's kind of going on like a round, and he is really kind of barking out grocery store items and their price at did, the very end. Did they get like the Sunday coupon book and they were just like, yeah, we're out of lyrics. Let's, uh, I, I think so. I think they got the, the circular, yeah, you know, they got the circular it. and it's like, what Smith's has chicken, boneless chicken breast, two ninety nine a pound. <laughs> and they just sang it over one another. And, and then as you do in the studio, you just sing the grocery list. That's what you that do. That makes sense. So, uh, we asked, uh, Steve about his upcoming release and also why he loves this record so much and uh, here are some of his la- thoughts about that. Genesis did a lot of things but I think it's a very weird and wonderful album. I wouldn't say it was our Sgt. Pepper, you can't say that but you know, it's it's got humor, it's got pantomime, there are parallels um, it's very strange, it starts off with Scottish plain song with Pete singing on his own, then there's something which draws in the work of Edward Elgar and the anthemic thing, Citizens of Hope and Glory, all that British stuff, quintessentially British. Then it goes off into something that sounds like Prokofiev goes rock. And um, uh, so I, I love the fact that you literally don't know what's coming next unless you happen to know the album, of course. Um, and uh, but but at the time when it was being re- released and un- unleashed on audiences, um, I knew that we had aces up up our sleeve, and I knew it was going to work. And I was proud of it then, and I'm I'm proud of it now, or I wouldn't revisit it. Uh, there's no other album that has ever sounded like this one to me. No one ever sits back and says, "Well, that sounds like Selling Eagle by the Pound." Yeah. And that uniqueness holds like a real special place in my heart. I, and I think that's a perfect way. To end this is like this. This is a completely unique record, unlike anything in the Genesis catalog. Anything unlike anything in anyone's catalog. I would definitely agree with that. And it is without a doubt one of my very favorite records by any band. And I go back to it endlessly, and it gives me you know all the feels. And honestly, this is the first time I've ever listened to this beginning to end. I've heard little snippets of this album before and pieces of it, but listening to it from beginning to end, I, I have a different appreciation for it. Makes me happy. It's definitely a... That makes me happy when you say that. I think that it's a a great example of prog rock. I don't know if it's the most accessible example of prog rock. No, probably not. But uh, if you're a fan of prog rock uh, or even sort of that sound. It's interesting that you even say that because is there, I mean, is there an accessibility to prog rock? Like, is there like, like, Mm. is there an avenue that you'd be like, well... This is an easy way to get into prog rock. You know, uh, honestly, off the top of my head, no. I, yeah. could, I couldn't be like, uh, go listen to this, and that'll start you down the right path. Right. There's not one. But I think that there are definitely some songs that are much more listenable. Like, there are songs that you still hear on the radio today on, like, classic rock stations that are prog rock songs that I would say, if you want, if you're interested, that's where you start. Right, and that becomes the 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 question, is it, a prog rock song, or is it a regular popular song by a prog rock band? Exactly. And like, maybe it isn't, because Floyd had plenty of popular songs that weren't prog rock songs, but they were a prog rock band. And you, like, if you were going to give someone, a, you know, hey, you need to start listening to Pink Floyd, I'm going to start you right here. Well, don't start me on another brick in the wall, because that's that's a popular song. If, yeah. I, if I'm going to listen to prog rock, then, you know, give me something off of Dark Side of the Moon, maybe. Yeah. 
and and with Genesis, it's the same thing. If you if if I want you to listen to Genesis, and I want you to appreciate their entire catalog, I'm not starting you at Invisible Touch. Yeah, because you will expect something that they don't deliver at the beginning. And I'm not going to start you at trespass or nursery crime either, because it's almost too yes. far afield. And that's where this and the next album that we were going to talk about, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, is a, a little more accessible, but it's also really nice to listen to, because, mm. because they are good songs, they're well-played, they're well-mixed, everything comes together as, as a whole, and I think it's just a, it's a beautiful album. Yeah. So we want to thank uh, Steve Hackett for joining us. Yes. And sharing and, uh, his thoughts. Uh, the new album out, it's a live album. It's a combination of Selling England by the Pound and Spectral Mornings uh, live at Hammersmith. It just came out September, late September, September 25th, yeah. So uh, by the time this comes out, it should have been out for quite a while. You can get it just about anywhere you can listen to music. Uh, and it's it's very, very good. Yeah. Uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, so we edited his answers to get everything in, uh, but if you are interested in hearing our entire conversation with him, it will be available on our Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash audio judo. Uh, we have subscriptions from as low as $3 a month to up to $20 a month. So please check that out. And, and that, uh, that $20 a month one, if you are really into music and you want to talk to us about it, uh, if you subscribe to that for a year... You get to record an episode with us. So, uh, that's a pretty big deal. But, uh, you can also check us out. Uh, if you have questions, comments, email us at info.audiojudo.com. It's the easiest way to get a hold of us. Uh, you can also check us at facebook.com forward slash audiojudo. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, we are at audiojudo. Get anything else? Nope, that's it. All right, take care, everybody. Talk to you soon. Collins Flea. It had a Phil Collins Flea performing. Like Phil Collins and Flea merged together like a bass playing drumming guy? Yes. Phil Collins and Flea had a baby and they... We'll go with that. Okay, yes. let's go with that. All right. It was all mechanical, you know. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points.
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 